you're listening to The Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. This podcast was created and produced by MK and Associates and your host, Mike King. We'll be covering a lot today, so buckle up. We're looking at the supply chain implications of the horrific attack on Israel by Hamas. We'll be asking what redundancies at Flexport and demises from fellow digital travellers says about the disruptive impact of digital forwarders. We've got the latest on air and ocean rates. We've got Neil Wilson at TAC Index and the ever-excellent Peter Sand from Zenitor pitching in with their expert analysis. And we've got the Lodestar's Gavin Van Maal. But the sparkling crown on this particular podcast produced by this less than royal king is an in-depth interview about geopolitics, the future of container shipping, the impact of the EU emissions trading system on carrier shippers and the just announced end of the carrier consortia exemptions under competition law in the EU. We'll be getting the rather respected views of the CEO of Vespucci Maritime. It's Lars Jensen. I find that when you make structural changes to an industry, and you base it on analysis that only takes the most extreme period into account. I don't think that is the the right way to analyze things, but here we are. Hello, everybody. I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar podcast. As ever, before we get going, I've said it before and I'll say it again. You can find this podcast on all platforms. Please give us a review and follow us if you wouldn't mind. We're also on thelodestar.com where you can follow breaking supply chain news stories from around the world. And if there are any topics you would like to discover, please don't be shy. You can contact me on myking121 at gmail.com. Helping me tackle the many trailed topics mentioned up top is Lodestar Managing Editor Gavin Van Maal. Welcome back, Gav. Uh, it's, It's been ages. What have you been up to? Fixing ships? Pottering? Yeah, Mike, I've been on a nine month sabbatical renovating an old barge in Suffolk. So, um, no pens, all pencils, set squares, drivers, all that sort of thing. A lot of power tools. I always had you down as a stencil sort of man. Well, welcome back. And back with a vengeance, may I add. You've been covering some really, really big breaking stories. So you're straight in at the deep end today. Uh, and there's only one place we can really start. The European Commission has decided not to extend the EU legal framework, which exempts liner shipping consortia from EU antitrust rules. This is the Consortium Block Exemption Regulation, or CBER. The Commission concluded that CBER no longer promotes competition in the shipping sector. So this exemption now expires on 25th of April next year. And just a little background for our listeners, the CBR was originally introduced in 2009 when the EC banned the old conference system that allowed carriers to coordinate on pricing levels. So... Just briefly, Gav, because we're going to talk to Vespucci Maritime CEO Lars Jensen about this, but just briefly, what does this mean for container shipping? So what it doesn't mean, first of all, is the end of alliances and of vessel sharing agreements. Those will continue to be allowed to operate, but what it effectively means is that they will be allowed to operate covered by the same regulations that other industries where companies are allowed to cooperate for operational purposes. So effectively, what it means is that lines are going to be under greater scrutiny in their arrangements with their competitors and peers. Just like any other industry? Just like any other industry. They will work under what is known as the um, 
the horizontal block exemption regulation and the specialization block exemption regulation rules. But these are, these are established regulatory regimes. And there's no right of appeal, right? This is this the EC. It's not. It's not a court. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not a court case. So this was a working document. The CBER was reviewed at regular intervals every five years since its first introduction, as you said, in two thousand and nine. So it was reviewed in two thousand and fourteen, I think, in two thousand and nineteen. On each of those occasions, the customers of lines and also their suppliers, you know, the port operators, etc requested that the EC removed CBER and the EC didn't. So this is this is basically the European Commission working document and they've recommended it for it to go into law at EU level and that and that's it. Yeah, it's not a court case. It will will happen. I mean I, I think it's instructive to look at the World Shipping Council's response to the news which which says that it is carefully reviewing the basis for the Commission's position and looks forward to further dialogue to ensure regulatory clarity. So I think that probably sums up where we are now. Fine, a detail to be ironed out then, I guess. Uh, how are shipper groups reacted to this? Yeah, so, I mean, they're pleased, right? But no one, I don't think, wants to sort of to be looked like they're crowing about it. So what you're, what the word that I keep have come across in my conversations with shipper groups and their representatives is normalization. This is welcome news and appears to be a normalization of competition rules for line shipping, said uh, James Hookham from the Global Shippers Forum. This won't be the end of consortia as we know them, just a bit more transparency and self-discipline expected amongst the lines, consistent with policies for all other sectors. To be honest, a very similar view was, was expressed to me by the Federation of uh, European Private Port Operators. So both lines, customers and their suppliers, I think, are, is it relief? Probably the wrong word, but, you know, they certainly welcome this. It, it, just, it just brings things back into line. Okay, Gav, thanks. We'll come back to this later with Lars Jensen, but there's a lot more I want to get through first. The attack on Israel by Hamas, which has resulted in the uh, murder of hundreds of innocents. We're, we're talking now October 11, uh, and it's still a very fluid situation. You've been running multiple updates on this on, on Lodestar.com. How is this impacting in the early days of what was probably going to be a conflict that drags out? Um, How is this impacting trade and logistics at the moment? We've seen rocket attacks across Israel from the Gaza Strip, but are the airports still open? The airport's still open. Yeah, I mean, it's it's that's a dreadful situation, isn't it? It's just horrible. Um, so, in terms of transport services, yeah, Ben Gurion Airport in Israel is still open. I don't think there's any surprise about that. It's a vital link for the Israeli economy. Passenger flights into the country operated by non-Israeli carriers have understandably been paused for the time being. So we've had confirmation. Lufthansa, Air France, KLM, British Airways, Virgin, all the US airlines have all cancelled their flights over the past couple of days. Uh, this morning, we had notification that Cathay Pacific had, had done likewise. El Al, the Israeli national carriers, obviously still continuing to service the country, as is Challenger Airline, the, the, the Israeli all-cargo outfit. It's other freighter carriers that we know of have also cancelled. Astral Aviation, the Kenya-based Airline cancelled its Nairobi Tel Aviv a weekly flight, which was due to arrive in Tel Aviv yesterday. Their CEO Sanjeev Gandhi told our correspondent Stuart Todd that 
The reason for cancelling that flight was due to the insecurity and emphasised that it wasn't due to a hike in insurance costs. So that's the sort of situation as it is at the moment in regards to aviation. Has there been any disruption to shipping? Is there been any hit that we might get war risk premiums? Well, not yet. So the, the two main ports in Israel, really, for commercial shipping are Haifa and Ashdod. There is also a LAT down in the south of the country, but let, we're just going to leave that for the moment because it's not really important for our sector. Haifa's obviously quite far up north, near the Lebanese border. That remains completely unaffected. Ashdod, on the other hand, is not far. And I don't know if you recall, but there was a rocket attack on Ashdod around March. It was March, April earlier this year, which killed killed 10 people. So Ashdod's had this before, right? Now, Ashdod has two container terminals. One of them, the Hadron Container Terminal, is operated by MSC's Terminal Operating Division, Terminal Operating Limited, the, the port arm. Been in touch with them. They said that it's all still working as per usual and the shipping services into Ashdod are working as usual. I mean... I don't know what's coming out of Gaza, right? I, I, you don't know if someone, if they might increase the attacks, if it might get too much for carriers to go in there. And I would say also, I mean, it seems to me the threats, if, if, if this conflict spreads, as I have heard analysts talking about, and sort of brings in Hezbollah into it, then the situation in Haifa might be equally precarious. Thanks, Gav. So it's a very fluid situation. And just to clarify for anyone listening, maybe a few days after this is published on the 12th of October, we're talking midday on the 11th of October, London. So if you want a, a more recent update, go to thelodestar.com. I, I thought I would check out how this was affecting air freight markets, if at all at this stage. So I had a quick chat with Neil Wilson at TAC Index, and he told me this. On the Israel situation, obviously, that we've seen flights suspended. Obviously, that impacts capacity um, to some extent, although um, other players have been continuing. It's too early to say what the, what the market impact has been. Obviously, we'll be looking at it closely. If it does impact capacity, then we will see rates go higher, than I would expect, but we're not seeing it yet. So we'll keep an eye on things there. Neil, elsewhere, there was some signs of a buildup in volume and rates in late September. Has this continued? Have rates come off again ahead of the peak? What's going on? Well, we were hearing that there was strong demand coming up in September. And so we were, we were saying there might be a peak season bounce of some sort, which there wasn't last year. What we saw over the month was that the, the overall Baltic Air Freight Index, which is uh, an index of the whole market, was up about 11% over the four weeks with two successive 4% increases in the last two weeks. So there was a little bit of a bounce and it's continued. The latest week was up slightly more, just under 1%, 0.7 something. So the market has been continuing to edge up. Some people are saying that it's a dead cat bounce, that, you know, there's too much capacity, demand isn't that strong in the US and whatever. On the other hand, there are others who are saying the order books are quite strong for new products, such as a new iPhone and also e-commerce, taking us through, not just through the traditional peak season, but all the way to Q1 and through Chinese New Year. So we'll have to see, but the anecdotal evidence is that uh, it, it is the market probably has bottomed and can go further up a bit from here. Thank you, Neil. Gav, flex pause. Well, we have to go there, don't we? Again. In the previous podcast, we covered the basics of Flexport founder Brian Peterson taking back control from former Amazon executive Dave Clark, who was only running the whole operation solo for a few short months. Aside from a load of mudslinging between Peterson and Clark, 
about who was at fault for the company's performance. We've got more redundancies, 30% or so of the workforce. And this follows 650 staff laid off in January, which I think was around 20% of staff at the time. Is this the end of this? Do we know what's going on, Gaff? Taking back control makes it sound as if Flexport was doing his own very personal Brexit, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I've been really surprised by the way that whole story has unfolded personally, but I'll leave that to the side. Redundancies? I mean, we don't know yet, do we? I mean, there's still turbulent times ahead of us, but there's been some tremendous sticking by my colleague, Alex Linane, who... who was able to access the account documents for Flexport's European and UK operations, which show the company making a profit. Yeah. But I mean, it's often been said that it doesn't, or it's been alleged that it doesn't, but certainly in 2021, Flexport was doing pretty well, but certainly washing its face and booking a slight bit in the black. I went to see Flexport about a year ago in London to their London offices and and I had a sort of briefing and we looked at one of their platforms and stuff. And the one thing that really surprised me about it was that it was a ginormous office on the south side of the Thames in a vast skyscraper. Probably there must, I think there were probably about 40 desks there, right? And it was a sort of Friday afternoon and one of them was occupied. I mean, the place was deserted and you couldn't help but think, this is costing a lot of money in rent, basically rent air. So all I'm saying here really is that if I looked at their European operations, I would say there are a lot of ways that they could probably trim their costs before they have to sack people. I'll just say, to be fair to Flexport, I go down to the city quite often on a Friday and I'm quite shocked that I go back to the days when we used to work down there. Gav, Friday was busy. The pubs were bustling. Now, no one wears a suit anymore and all the offices are empty on a Friday. So it might not really have been a reflection of what was happening in Flexport for the rest of the week. But we'll, uh, we'll leave our listeners to decide on that one, I think. Hard to tell. Does this tell us anything more about where digital forwarding is? Some of them are struggling to make money post-pandemic, aren't they? I think everyone's struggling to make money post-pandemic, aren't they? And, you know, a lot of digital forwarders, obviously, they're backed by venture capital funds. and from what I understand, we've never been backed by VC fund, but what if you want to talk to people about it and what it's like is that the pressure can really get ramped up on you. You know, so although you, you raise money from investors, if you raise that money through debt instead, you'd be very, very highly leveraged. And your bank manager would be calling you worried about whether he's going to be getting his returns. And I suspect it's a broadly similar situation with some of these digital forwarders and their VC investors. Uh, there's been some interesting chatter online about this as well. I mean, there's some of the make very good points. The likes of DSV and Kuna and Noggle, they haven't been slow to invest in their own digital services, these traditional forwarders. So getting into the game has been difficult. But Drury's Philip Damas said on social media that uh, global tenders of it to manufacture and retail customers rarely included Flexports or other digital forwarders. Not They just weren't getting invited to bid. And I want to get a, an outside opinion on this as well, actually. Uh, let's bring in Zenith Chief Analyst Peter Sand here. Hello, Peter. Are we seeing the failure of this digital forward revolution, if I may call it that, do you think? I think challenges remain for the digital freight forwarders. Those that fail to build a sustainable business case during the, uh, say, the COVID heydays will definitely find it more difficult to, uh, to find the ground uh, going forward now in a much changed market. So I think we will see 
some sort of weeding out. Digitalization is, is all around us, sure thing. We have definitely also seen the traditional freight forwarders, of course, uh, offering digital uh, solutions to, uh, to small as well as medium and large size shippers. But at the end of the day, shipping remains a personal thing. I mean, everybody loves to have a face to talk to and a person to hold reliable. So you cannot build a successful business one way or the other on a digital platform only, in my eyes. Peter, I know you're between meetings today, so I haven't got you for very long. Can you tell us quickly where we are with container shipping rates right now? We've had all these blanks, but then carriers are also trying to push through some rather large rate increases on that Asia to North Europe lane. Will they have any success as we enter the slack season? The short reply to that is, uh, when you look at the Selena, uh data, uh, you can see that carriers are struggling to uh, to keep up the rate levels. Uh, if we compare spot rates on some of the main trades uh, out of Far East over the past month, they are all declining, especially out of, uh, out of Europe. We see rates being down to the extent of 30% from the past month. This goes for spot as well as long-term, of course. But the one thing I would hit on here is the long-term rates into North America that seems to not defy gravity, but literally show its uh, show the result of carriers successfully managing capacity over the summer. So the Seneta uh, rates for the long term from Far East into U.S. West Coast and U.S. East Coast are up to the extent of 6 to 8% when compared to last month. So uh, it isn't just, say, anecdotal evidence that carriers need to lift the spot rates heading into any tendering season. I mean, we know tendering is happening all the time, right? But at least this is the proof in the pudding that it's all a game of, say, pushing up uh, one part of the market in order to make sure that you also lift profitability or at least reduce the costs of, of your repositioning on, say, another market in that sense. Now, if you look at blank sailings, uh, we're just in the recording in the week following uh, uh, Golden Week. Uh, so this is a week where 40 to 50% of sailings are blanked up front by the carriers. The visibility into what they will do in the coming month is quite hazy right now. We, we do see a level of blank sailings that I would expect to increase quite shortly as in a matter of days, because otherwise they will just continue to face eroding spot market rates. Peter Sand, Chief Analyst at Zenita, thanks for the update today. Always a pleasure, Mike. Gav, the Lodestar has reported that December throughput at North Europe's container ports will fall significantly as a result of these golden week holiday blanking programs by carriers. How severe is this drop in volume? We did report that. <laughs> it's still quite early to tell the impact of the blanks because they're announced last week and they're going through to the middle of November. So it's only now that that cargo is not being loaded on those ships, if you see what I mean. So, But yes, look. The capacity is being pulled is a lot. Between the beginning of this week and mid-November, we're looking around 10% of advertised capacity globally across all trades being blanked. But if we look to the Asian-North Europe trade, for example, it's about 37%. So on the sort of pro forma basis, if that 37% was full of cargo, then yeah, you, know, you could be looking at real significant double-digit drops in cargo volumes at the ports. Trans-Pacific, I think the, the blanks amount to about 50% of capacity for that four to five-week period. And as our esteemed colleague Mike Wackett reported, the utilisation levels at European container yards 
have now fallen to around 50 to 60%. And it tends to be a rule of thumb in the port industry that a good business, a good port with a decent level of profitability, but able to service its customers and supply chains properly, should really be looking to be about 70 to 75% utilization in its container yards. Thanks, Gav. Another story you've been covering is the implementation of the EC's forthcoming emissions trading system. The new regulations require shipping lines operating in Europe to surrender to authorities what they're calling EU allowances, the EUAs. These are carbon credits, essentially, that correspond with their fleet emissions for the previous year. Now, this applied not just to shipping within the EU, but also to all shipments to and from the EU. Essentially, this means shipping companies have got to start purchasing EUAs on an ongoing basis from the start of next year, ahead of a deadline, initial deadline of September 2025. We're going to get some views on this from Lars Jensen a bit later. But before he joins us, although the initial deadline is 2025, which just sounds miles away, we're already seeing these new regulations have tangible impacts on shipping customers, aren't we? We are starting to see tangible impacts insofar as people are scratching their head and wondering what on earth is going on with it. And, and I think Lars will probably explain it in much better detail than I can, but essentially you're right. So an EU allowance, you buy one EU allowance for each tonne of CO2 that your vessel emits. You have to buy an allowance for every tonne of CO2. The initial date that the carriers will be required to, what's, as it's known, surrender their EU allowance will be September 2025. But the period that will be covered when they surrender those allowances is for 2024. So what they need to do is to recover the costs of those EU allowances in advance of having to fork them out come September 2025. So what they have to do is try and, it's a bit like a bunker surcharge, as, as Lars has, has often made form that panel. So they're having to try and recoup money that they're then due to pay, but they're not due to pay it for 21 months. So the very, very difficult thing is that they don't know what level they should be recouping that charge up because the EU allowances are a market-based mechanism, i.e. they're bought and sold. So their price varies. And when you recover something in January 2024 for something that you've got to pay for in September 25, but you don't know what the price will be in September 2025, you're left with a lot of chickens and a lot of eggs and wondering which of them came first. So just focusing on what we do know, right? This is a three-year phase-in period. The industry itself is going to be liable for 40% of emissions in 24, and that rises to 70%, and then 100% in 25 and 26. As you say, these EUAs are already highly volatile. They've ranged between 80 and 100 euros per tonne this year. But last year, they were down to below 60 euros per tonne after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So a lot of moving parts. Is that the right phrase for this? It's worse than that, isn't it? It seems to be. I mean, it's one of those things that you look at and you think, oh my God, this has got the potential to be an unholy mess. But then... You know, the EU has it's got a lot of experience at bringing in complicated legislation covering industries. And the thing about the phased manner of this is that it gives it time to be flexible and to improvise and to work out what does work and what, what doesn't work. And it's great for us, right, because it's a good story. But often I've seen these things work out and they generally work out after a few years. But there will be a bedding in period. And I suspect that there is going to be 
disputes between carriers and their customers and regulators over the charges, over the level of charges. On top of a change in competition or excellence, who's going to enforce all this, Gav? <laughs> well, I think well, it will be the EC and also I imagine it will be member states. If I remember rightly from a conversation I had with a lawyer, it will be each carrier, if they're non-European carriers, they will be allocated a member state in which they do most of their business. So, for example, think of an Asian shipping line, which has its headquarters in Hamburg. It will be assigned to Germany. Germany will then be responsible for collecting the surrendered EUAs. And it'd be the member state that would be responsible for penalising setting the penalties for the non-surrender of EUAs. However, that will come on top of an EU basic penalty. If so every EUA that's not surrendered, which equals one tonne of CO2, there'll be a fixed penalty. The EC, at European level, they'll apply a fixed penalty per tonne of CO2 that's not surrendered via an EUA. But then on top of that, the member states have the ability to set their own penalties. And the nuclear option, by the way, is that if a company fails to declare its EUAs for a single vessel over a two-year period, its entire fleet could be expelled from operating in Europe. I'm very interested in how this is going to be passed on to shippers. Uh, let's bring in the CEO of Vespucci Maritime to ask him about that and the outlook for container shipping more generally. Lars Jensen, welcome to the Lodestar podcast and welcome back from your exploration of the Amazon River. Good trip. No, it was an excellent trip, and it was one of those where I could see with my own eyes that, yes, water levels were indeed much lower than what they usually are. So I know the Amazon is not the Panama Canal, but they got low water surcharges there for a good reason. Right. A slow boat, was it, or you a bit of line of shipping? No, that was the slow boat with a hammock on deck. I'm not sure whether you can have a hammock on deck on a 20,000 TEU. Well, you properly roughed it then, right? It sounds very good. I will get more details off you about that at some point, but we have got quite a lot to cover today because there's a lot going on. There's news breaking all around us. We've just been talking about ETS laws before you joined us, but obviously there's an, another big topic out there, the elephant in the room, sending reverberations through container shipping. And that's the European Commission decision this week not to renew liner shipping's exemption from competition rules. Just to recap, this is the 2009 Consortia Block Exemption Regulation, basically which allows carriers to operate vessel sharing agreements and pool capacity. As we heard earlier from Gav, this means lines are going to fall under general competition rule like every other sector. And I know you haven't had much time to reflect on this, Lars, but I'll ask you anyway, is this the end of the alliance system in your view? I mean, carriers are left in quite a bit of a mess from this decision, aren't they? I wouldn't say they're left in a mess. And let me challenge you a bit and say, what is an alliance? Alliance is just a fancy word for a massively large and complex uh, vessel sharing agreement. And what this is going to do, it's not going to disallow vessel sharing agreements. Uh, it's just going to make it more complicated to run very large, very complex vessel sharing agreements. So, so let's put it that way. So it, it is not something that will move the earth. It is not something that will change the world as we know it. But it will force the carriers to think about how should they restructure. I mean, most MSE is in the happy position that they already announced their divorce half a year ago. Just a technical snack here. Uh, this runs out in April and 2M is supposed to run to beginning of uh, January 25, but I think that's more of a technicality. And for those who at least have been listening to me for the past year now, they will know that I have been basically telling you everybody that wanted to listen that the two other alliances 
had an expiration date anyhow in the short term, and this is probably just going to trigger that one. It will at least force the partners in those two alliances to reconsider what would it take to still operate a massive, large alliance, or is there a simpler construction where you take this somewhat apart and then you operate it more piecemeal of vessel sharing agreements on different trades where it adds up. So at least all those other carriers, they have some thinking to do. Do you think we'll see a slew of announcements from the different carriers about how they're going to respond to this over the next week or so? No, uh, they need to go into thinking box first. And in practical terms, this has, if I'm not mistaken, uh, ramifications in what is it, second quarter 2024, which tends to coincide with this is where the carriers anyhow do their major overhauls of the networks. So if you work in a network department in a carrier, you are going to work overtime for the next few months. This is a matter of finding out, okay, how do we set up the major networks? But you're not going to see any announcements with practical details for the carriers this side of New Year. If I may jump in, there is sort of clarification that it's the consortia block exemption regulation, which is not going to be renewed. And line of companies, there are, there's another regulation called the horizontal exemption regulation, horizontal and also specialized exemption regulations, which they will still be able to operate under. But I personally, from the conversations I've had with, with various groups, I do expect the consortia arrangements to come under greater scrutiny by competition regulators, particularly in respect to sort of market share. And if you read the working paper, you know, one of the things they noted was that the decision not to renew the CBER comes after you've had two years of extremely high freight rates and very constrained supply chains. Yeah, you, you can say, I mean, this came out, what, an hour before we're doing this podcast, so I've only been reading it through it very briefly. But what I'm also taking away from this one is the decision is based on a working paper. The working paper looks at the period 2020 to 2023. And if we're being just a little bit objective here, if you want to do something structural with an industry, it seems kind of silly to base it on analysis of the most extreme period the industry has ever seen in its entire history. I mean, this is a period where freight rates increased far more than you had ever seen before, but it is also a period where freight rates then declined more rapidly and faster than ever seen before. It is a period where you saw service levels in terms of schedule reliability jump to levels never thought of before by absolutely no fault of the carriers, but more driven by pandemic disruptions and Suez Canal blockages and what have you. So I find that when you make structural changes to an industry and you base it on analysis that only takes the most extreme period into account, I don't think that is the, the right way to analyze things, but here we are. Yeah, I mean, that is interesting. It does seem to have been a, a victim. Lines seem to have been a victim of the COVID years in the sense that there's a quote, actually, that Gav had in his story on the lodestar.com from the EC, market developments in the sector during the evaluation period tend to confirm both the inelasticity of demand for liner shipping services and the limited elasticity of supply. In combination, these two factors reduce the likelihood that any cost efficiencies achieved by carriers would be passed on to transport users. That's pretty damning on the benefits for European consumers during the COVID years, and that's the period we're talking about. Yeah, and you can say any analysis on demand and capacity elasticity in a period where both of these factors were subjected to massive external forces, neither controlled by the carriers nor by the shippers, doesn't really make a lot of sense. Now, that being said, 
I don't want to be the told you so guy. I was asked about this almost a year ago as well. Uh, is it going to be extended or not? And back then, my view was it likely would get passed, barely, but it would get passed, but it would be unlikely to get passed next time in 2029. What I also flagged back then was that the headwind the carriers were going to face is basically political pressure. Because as I think we also know, at the point in time where freight rates were reaching astronomical levels, that was seen by a lot of shippers and, of course, then also by extension, a number of politicians as the result of collusion. That can quickly be refuted with actual facts in terms of how the industry works. There was no collusion. It was a matter of demand exceeding supply, pure and simple. This is exactly what you would expect in a market with free price formation, but the inability to quickly build new capacity. But politically speaking, the damage was done already. There was a, a lot of political animosity. Now, you will probably never get any of the decision makers to say that that played into it. They would point to the, to the working paper here, but then that's also why I point out that you can certainly criticize the baseline period underlying the working paper. But all of that is water under the bridge. The carriers very likely will have to now take stock of this situation and say, fine, how do they then create the networks going forward? Uh, what's that phrase? That everything's political. During the pandemic, we saw the Ocean Shipping Reform Act 2022 in the US uh, massively expanded the scope and the powers of the Federal Maritime Commission. And we had FMC Chairman Daniel Maffey on this podcast last time up. He actually said he didn't really expect to see Congress repeal the exemption of lines in this setting, at least, but he didn't really rule it out entirely. And there is an Ocean Shipping Antitrust Enforcement Act that's still winding its way through the corridors of power. But what does this decision today mean? I mean, and it's early days, but what does it mean for the US and China? It's international shipping. They need to be on the same page to a degree, don't they? Well, only to the degree when it comes to the shipping services that move between US and Europe and between China and Europe. For everything else, it doesn't necessarily have ramifications uh, as such. We're going to have a regulatory patchwork then? Well, we always have had a regulatory patchwork. That's nothing new. Gav, you're going to continue covering this story, aren't you? Yeah, very much so. I've been speaking to the Global Shippers Forum today, and you know we're obviously starting to speak to the other various associations, many of whom submitted feedback. I mean, I think I thought this would not be renewed, but I, one of the th factors was that the the German Competition Authority came out at the back end of 2022 saying it opposed the renewal of the CBER. And I, and I suspected at the time that that was, that was going to be a very, that was quite a hefty blow to its supporters just because of the, the fundamental economic importance of Germany to the European economy. I suppose we can't say the UK doesn't have a position on this seems that we don't get to vote anymore. It does. In fact, the UK is also has, has its own, I mean, it's the UK's Competition and Markets Authority was aligned with the CBER, but has, again, has indicated that it would outlaw consortia or it would outlaw the exemption that lines get. And, and you can say, even though uh, the UK is clearly not part of the EU anymore, we do see them align on a lot of topics. Initially, they were not part of ETS, now they are. Uh, as Lars has helped me pivot to back to the, uh, the emissions trading system, uh, I mean, this may as well just be the European Commission podcast, mightn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Lars. How do you see ETS impacting container shipping and ports generally over the next few years? What's your view on it? And are you expecting pushback from shippers if this isn't done in a transparent way, which is going to be very, very difficult, as I was discussing earlier with Gavin? 
Yeah, there will be pushback and this will not be transparent at all. Uh, Maybe I want to recast this one slightly before we talk ETS. Let's rewind the clock to Q4 2019, where all of a sudden everybody talked about, oh my God, low salt for an IMO 2020, it's going to impact the industry. Will the carriers be able to push through low salt for bunker fuel surcharges? Uh, Will this be highly disruptive? And by the way, why is this happening so quickly? Remember back in 2019, we had known for 10 years that this was coming and it all happened in the last couple of months uh, before implementation. I get a sense of deja vu here. I mean, it's Groundhog Day over again. We're doing this at the very last minute. But that being said, uh, there are a number of challenges that simply will prevent a transparent solution, no matter how much anyone would desire it. Issue number one is this is EU only, whereas low sulfur was global. That already brings up an issue. It's a surcharge that then partly depends on what was the last port of call before you got to the EU. So it suddenly matters whether your last port of call was Singapore or whether it was Jeddah. That actually makes a significant difference, to put it mildly. Then also to just illustrate the, the challenge with transparency, again, let me contrast this to a fuel surcharge. The carriers will charge, say, fuel surcharges quarter one, 2024. That will be based on the actual fuel price as it was known here at the end of 2023. You can then always argue, are the fuel surcharge formulas sufficiently transparent? But it's at least clear, this is factual. The bunker price was this, and it leads to the following surcharge. That is not going to be possible with ETS. With ETS... You need to report your emissions by the end of 2024. And then you need to buy uh, CO2 allowances at an auction in September 2025. So I need to have a surcharge in Jan 24 based on an unknown price in September 2025. That makes this completely intransparent right off the bat. And there's nothing that can be done to reasonably resolve that element uh, on, on its own. The next thing to keep in mind is just as with bunker surcharges, will the carriers be able to push this through? If we look over history, every time that the oil price went up, you can see were the carriers successful? The answer is both yes and no. Whenever the carriers increase the bunker surcharge, especially if oil prices go up a lot, they will be quick to point out we have 80%, 90%, 98% bunker surcharge recovery, which is factually true. But if the market is weak at the same time, you see a corresponding erosion in the base rate rates. And that, of course, makes it a lot less transparent. So will the carriers be successful? Well, that kind of depends on market conditions. If you then look at the indications, at least put out now by Moe's, Kapak, and CMA, CGM, it's not that the surcharges are onerous as such. It's not massive amounts you're talking about. You're talking the range 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, euros, depending a little bit on the the different trade lanes. It is not something that is going to be highly destructive. Let me be a bit controversial here. As we all learned over the past few years, shippers can easily handle a 500% freight rate increase. So an increase here of one or 2%, what's the problem? Now, of course, I know that is an extreme exaggeration. There were shippers who could not ship their goods. Uh, They were priced out of the market. There were shippers that took losses because of this, but as an overall industry, despite the extreme freight rate increases, it was apparently sufficient attractive to ship anyhow, so we ship more cargo during the high freight rate levels than ever seen before in history anyhow. 
So I don't see the costs associated with this as something that's going to be destructive to the industry. It can be a mild nuisance, but it's about that level we're talking about. Lars Jensen. So um, shippers should just swallow it up, right? Ah, that 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 is not exactly what I said. It will be a it will be a fist fight between the carriers and shippers who's going to swallow it, and the market strength will depend who will have to swallow which part of it. The other sector which provides big opposition or has been very vocal in its opposition to the introduction of the ETS has been the port sector, Lars, particularly in, in the Mediterranean, where they're worried about the loss of transshipment volumes. So it seems to me this works on two levels. On one level, there's a fear of people trying to evade the ETS, i.e. unloading their box at a transshipment terminal near to the EU and then forwarding it into the EU with therefore a lower carbon tax. And the other seems to be Mediterranean ports, because of the geographic location, who are worried about losing non-EU transshipment traffic. Um, I just wondered how you assess that threat to Europe's southern ports. No, I, I think it is a threat to be taken serious. Again, uh, if, if we just think a bit practical about it, it, let's say my ship originates in Jeddah and it's going up to Rotterdam. I can go from Jeddah to Rotterdam and I would have to pay 50% because it comes from a non-EU port. If I stop in Algeciras to do transshipment, then I have to pay 100% from Algeciras all the way up. So for some of the Mediterranean ports, there will be an argument for some of the carriers to carefully consider how many of the services is it actually necessary for me to have that transshipment call? Because I would then be having to pay twice the amount of emissions that I otherwise would. And again, this is where everything tends to tie together with where we started this segment on the carriers need to revise all of their networks because of the, the CBER. And this would be something that was already on the drawing boards with the carriers. My expectation was fully that you would begin to see a gradual readjustment of the networks already from next year, because even though the cost per TEU and therefore for the shippers is relatively marginal, you're talking hundreds of millions, if not billions for some of the carriers in terms of setting up your network right in relation to how much emissions actually counts and how much does not. So what, what about laws in the, the transshipment battle for non-EU shipments? So I'm, I'm thinking, imagine a situation, for example, where a, a carrier has the choice of transshipping, say, a bit difficult at the moment with the war, but say you've got Black Sea or East Mediterranean destinations that are outside Europe and a, a carrier has a choice to transship those boxes either over Piraeus or Suez Canal, container terminal. Sure, one, one of those, one of those transshipment things will come with an ETS attached and the other won't. No, that, that, that is probably going to, to be very real. Um, in, in the absence of anything else, I would say this is a significant competitive opportunity for all transshipment hubs in the Red Sea, so a Jeddah and all the other ports you have down there. It could also potentially be an opportunity for some of the ports in Israel and Lebanon. Of course, not right now with what's going on, but basically some of, some of those ports are there whereas others are somewhat out of luck because a port like Tangiers is very likely going to be one of those transshipment hubs that, so to speak, doesn't count because they're too close. With the UK's final adoption of the ETS, it also stops that loophole because prior to that, I could have all my ships call in Felixstowe and then I would only have to pay the ETS charge from Felixstowe over to the continent. Yes, yes, exactly. And of course, not to make this 
only about the EU, we can actually say the ETS also applies outside of what people think about as the EU. Because keep in mind, there are overseas possessions by some of the EU countries, some of which, not all of them, but some of which are included. And this would include places such as French Guiana and Martinique and other places. So in places in the Caribbean, for example, this needs to be taken into consideration because they're in scope too. So it's going to have a major impact on port competition. Lars, we were talking earlier about the impact of all these blanks on volume levels. Do you have a view on whether carriers have much chance of doing anything with rates to push them up a bit this quarter? Or are we looking at the build-up to Chinese New Year already for any sort of respite from the current scenario? I mean, on the flip side of that as well, again, we, we discussed this a bit earlier. There's some, some coordinated, I don't know if it was coordinated is the right word to use today. There's been some effort on Asia, North Europe to try and push those spot rates up. Yeah, well... Let's again look a little bit back in history. Do the carriers have the ability to manage capacity to push rates up? The answer to that seems to be no. Uh, where the carriers were extremely successful, that was, of course, in the beginning of the pandemic in 2020, where they removed large amounts of capacity. But during that period, the rates did not go up. What the carriers were very successful in doing was preventing any further rate collapse. And I think that's how we should look at Q4 as well. The ball is in the carrier's court. They were not really blanking that many sailings here over the peak season, even though the peak season was anemic. Then they got their act together here in the weeks uh, immediately following Golden Week. So the onus is on the carriers now to have a more aggressive blanking program for Q4. Then you can certainly have a situation where rates don't drop any further. But make no mistake, there is no history showing that the carrier's active use of capacity management leads to rate increases, but it prevents rate declines. Where do you think all this is going to leave carrier profitability for this calendar year, at least, or, or for this fourth quarter? Is this all just back to normal now, is it, after the pandemic? No, no, it, it's below normal. Uh, if you look at overall, spot rates are not the entire market, of course, but for spot rates, they are below pre-pandemic levels in Asia, Europe. They are simply below on the Atlantic. They are slightly above on the Pacific, but if you take the broader view, I mean, container trade statistics have their global index, which is much better aligned with the carrier's results. That one is still above where we were pre-pandemic, but if you look at what CTS data tells us for Q3, keep in mind CTS measures the time of loading, the carriers in their financial results typically account when the cargo is delivered. So we already know the, the CTS equivalent for Q3. And in that respect, rate levels are still about 11% higher than pre-pandemic. But the problem is, if you look at the carrier's Q2 results, costs were 29% higher than pre-pandemic. And the carriers have, of course, been reducing their costs for the last three quarters. If they continue at that same pace, they will still be quite a bit above the 11%. So you're looking at a Q4 where costs are going to be growing significantly more than what the freight rates have done. And I would not be surprised if you see multiple carriers go into red territory here in Q4. Yeah, just one follow-up on that, Lars. I just wondered what the situation tells us about the psychology of carriers. And you mentioned that immediately after the pandemic and the lockdowns being announced, they were very quick to, to react. It obviously was a sort of big bang type of event. Whereas the last few months, the last quarter, it's been a gradual slide into a desperate situation. 
And I just wonder if, if, that they haven't seen it coming or they didn't realize that they were in the middle of it and w- what it tells us about how these network departments have, have been operating. Yeah, I, I think you're, you're hitting on the right thing there because it was a massive event in 2020. It was quite literally life-threatening for quite a number of carriers if they didn't do something. So they acted very rapidly to prevent further declines. The last, I would say, at least four or five months has more been like uh, slowly starting to boil the water you're in, uh, and therefore they have not been very effective. You've also seen a couple of additional dynamics. The Atlantic freight rates, they stayed at astronomical levels for a much longer time than the other trades, with the inevitable result that carriers then pile in more capacity to capitalize on it, causing the rates, of course, to sink completely. Then it also appears that the carriers had some kind of hope of a, if not strong, then at least normal peak season trying to fill their ships. And that peak season also failed uh, to materialize. Although you look at the latest CTS day, so I think it came out for August. And I mean, volumes are still 7% up where they were August last year. I mean, it's... yeah, but, but, but here's the problem that requires context. August last year, that is when the market collapsed. So when we do the year-on-year comparison, it is no wonder that the year-on-year growth rates and CTS suddenly look good. I would expect to see even higher year-on-year growth rates the next few months from CTS. That's not because the market right now is strong. It's because it was phenomenally weak a year ago. I increasingly find it is more relevant to compare and look at growth rates versus the same month in 2019 as a baseline. And if you do that, you find globally that we are only about 4% higher than 2019. That's an annual growth rate of just 1% over four years. That is not a healthy market. For a normal peak season, Lars, you would, you would, you would see it would be July, August, October. July, August, September, sorry. Yeah. And you yeah. would see, would you normally see an increase in shipments in August over July and then in September over August? Mm-hmm. Because this year's peak season... And last year's peak season, the volumes peaked in July, and then they began to to decline in August. So are peak seasons changing? Well, last year, people shipped early, didn't they? But is there a sign that they did this year, or they weren't quite sure about inventory levels? Because that really depends who you talk to. Yeah, I, I think part of that is probably more a matter of shippers that have gotten spooked over the debacles in 2020 and in 2021, where they found that if they shipped in the normal peak season, suddenly there was absolutely zero space. So you had to pay the $20,000 freight rates or, or whatever the problem was. So to try to avoid a repeat of that one, because in hindsight, it is clear that was not a problem in 2022. But when you were in the beginning and early summer of 2022, that was not a given. It was not necessarily a given that the market would normalize. There was a real risk that you would also get massive supply chain issues at that point in time. So I think the prudent shippers there rationalized, let's just ship the whole thing, say, a month earlier than, than usual to avoid that problem. And then, then they, this year, they found themselves facing massively increased warehousing costs. Oh, yeah. Just looking at that market at the moment, are you seeing any signs from the carriers when you go through those financial results that those that have been following the path of extending into supply chains, vertically consolidating, that they might have bought themselves any greater protections from a cyclical downturn on freight rates? Short answer is no. Uh, It's hard to really break the numbers down. But when you look at the performance of the carriers, there don't seem to be, you can say, a great deal of insulation compared to carriers that are not necessarily pursuing that path. 
and there are multiple effects because there's one thing is the vertical integration. Then you have some care areas that have been more active than others in doing, for example, multi-year contracts, which also have a hard time standing up to the changes we have now. But when I look across all the different care areas, there doesn't seem to be a huge effect of trying to insulate yourself from the rate downturn coming down from the extreme high. So what's the reason for going on this vertical integration course thing? That is a very good question. I mean, uh, for, for anybody who's been listening to me for the last five years or so, they will know that uh, I'm in the camp where complete vertical integration between logistics and carriers, I don't necessarily see that as a winning formula because I, I quite frankly find it hard to see how that can be the best setup. There are there are some theoretical benefits, obviously, that could come out from it, but there's a lot of practical cons that go against it. So in the, because the vertical consolidation doesn't just originate from the carriers, you know, we have companies like DP World investing in shipping lines and, and, and also trying to create a supply chain load. Yeah, yeah, but, but the, the issue here, I mean, DP World will probably disagree completely with what I'm going to say, but the way I see it is, I'm not sure DP World is doing vertical integration. I'm more likely to see in DP world doing diversification of their portfolio, but that's a completely different thing. Okay, fair enough. So then what do you think is the best of these scenarios? A shipping line buying a terminal, a port buying a shipping line, or a shipper stroke forward uh, starting a shipping line? What I see is more robust over time is stay in what you're good with. Let's take the carriers, for example. I'm not saying carriers shouldn't do terminal business or shouldn't do logistics. They absolutely can, and some of them are good at it. But that doesn't mean you have to integrate the whole thing end-to-end. You can operate and say, fine, I got a few add-ons that work for me here or work for me there. That is probably more similar to what you're seeing, for example, CMA doing receiver. So you have the model where, yes, you have these different things on the shelves, but you don't necessarily force through the integration end-to-end. Because that raises the level of complexity you need to deal with in your business phenomenally. And furthermore, it moves you further over in the camp where you have to compete head on with a number of your own large customers, namely the freight forwarders. So basically a a diversified portfolio rather than a consolidated service. Yes. And again, if we put a bit of perspective, if you look over the last, what, 30 years or so, you will see all of the carriers tend to have fluctuated over times between these positions. Should they be pure carriers? Should they be fully integrated? Should they do something? This this is a movement that's cyclical that goes back and forth. And right now we're in a cycle where a lot of people are tending more towards the integrated logistics side. I see that as a cycle. And like all other cycles, it's going to come around again. Just takes a long time. Lars, we covered unfolding events in Israel as best that we could a bit earlier. Um, It's another example of how unforeseen events and changing geopolitics can quickly disrupt the logistics landscape almost overnight. Well, in this case, very much overnight. It's something that geopolitical situation soon. I'll be covering a lot more in the next Lodestar podcast. But when we've spoken in the past, uh, unless I've remembered this incorrectly, You've tended to take the view that shippers will choose lowest cost most times over supply chain resilience, just purely so they can stay competitive in their own market. Is this still your view? Or do you think there's a bit more meat to things like friendshoring and China plus one now than there was a few years ago? Ah, but those two are not necessarily mutually exclusive. Choosing the cheapest one could actually be to move production somewhere else. That might also be the cheapest one. That's part of why you would see some of this friendshoring as well. 
at the end of the day, it is cost. Uh, and the, the argument, uh, at, at least from my side, is extraordinarily simple. If I say I'm going to have higher costs to have a robust supply chain over the next 10 years, rest assured, somebody else is going to think short term and they will do the cheapest right now. And if there are no disruptions the next two years, they will perform a lot better than me and I will go out of business. So everybody is being forced down that path, whether we like it or not. And do you think we'll still see places like Vietnam, Thailand, maybe India, maybe Eastern Europe gaining bigger shares of what has been China's export market into places like the US? Yes, uh, you will see that in Southeast Asia. And what I also expect to see likely over the next, call it even 10 to 20 years, one of the large growth Indians we're going to see is going to be what I tend to call the Indian Ocean Rim. So the countries around the Indian Ocean, Africa, on uh, especially demographics and imports going over to there, you're going to see, at least if India gets their act together with bureaucracy, going to see India as a major growth engine. The Middle East already is quite a growth engine. So the whole Indian Ocean Rim is going to be a locus for a lot of growth. And again, tying it back to where we started with CBER, we are so used to a world where, well, the major trades are Asia, Europe, and Asia, North America, and maybe Atlantic, this East-West, and then everything else is North-South. That is going to change over the next decade and two. This is going to be a much more complex landscape where it is not the traditional trunk routes that are necessarily the growth drivers that we've been used to. Uh, when you look at the order book laws, then on that basis, we've got a more fragmented world for manufacturers and OEMs. Have the carriers been buying the right ships for the right sort of flexible ships rather than there's an awful lot of investments gone into those big trunk lanes that are not going to be the rapid growth ones? Uh, to some degree, yes, because what you've seen, especially towards the end of the major buying spree, was the carriers were taking a step down rather than continue to order 20 to 24,000 TEUs. They went down to the 14, 15, 16,000. They are a lot more versatile uh, already there. So you are beginning to see that shift. Lars, you made a, an interesting point uh, online, I think it was, about the decarbonization of the global merchant fleet, including tankers and bulkers, and the, and the pressure this will put shipyards under. So maybe what looks like overordering by container lines might in fact be pretty savvy. Can you explain a little bit more about how you take that view? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the market right now, it is easy to take the position that the carriers have massively overordered, which is why we got overcapacity. That, that's factually true. We do have overcapacity now. We do take more ships in than we actually need. But if you think ahead two, three, four, five years, keep in mind all of the IMO regulations in terms of uh, decarbonization, that applies to all the realms of shipping. I think in round numbers, we got 90,000 merchant ships in the world. Only 6,000 of those are container ships. Container ships are some of the youngest ships in the world. Tangers, bulkers, and a lot of those are a lot older on average. They will have a harder time living up to the new requirements. So at some point in time, you are going to see tankers and bulkers in those segments need to replenish their fleets. This could easily overwhelm the shipyards with orders. That would mean, say, three, four years down the line, you could be in a situation where as a container line, you might want new ships, but either you can't get them at all because there is zero shipyard availability, or it is going to be phenomenally expensive. So this will be the shipyard version of what the carriers did during the, the pandemic. So what seems like massive overcapacity on the part of some carriers right now 
say, three or four years down the line, they might be sitting on capacity while some of their competitors cannot get capacity. Presumably also there will be increased phasing out of the older container ships because of their inability to comply with CII and the various new IMO and ship efficiency measures. Yes, and, and you can say just to derail the conversation completely, that raises another issue nobody's really looking at. Again, not just for container ships, but for all, all ships. If this drive towards decarbonization means a renewal and a lowering of the average age of ships, that will also mean a huge increase in the number of ships to be scrapped. Where are they going to be scrapped? Realistically, they will end up in the beaches in India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh under conditions nobody likes. There are EU regulations that you cannot do this, but some of the container ships that are very large, some of the other ships that are large, there are zero physical facilities that can actually do this. So there is a scrapping issue looming ahead of us as well that's flying under the radar. A very good point and a good point to finish. Thank you very much, Lars Jensen, CEO of Vespucci Maritime. Thanks for joining us on the Lodestar podcast once again. My pleasure. Gav, Lars, always good value, isn't he? He's great. It's no surprise that he has the veneration of the industry that he gets. Mm. Yeah, there's not, not at all. No, always informative. Just to finish up, Gav, to return to the emissions trading system, I just want it to be clear to our listeners, this isn't just affecting container lines. Ferry companies are already right now making commercial decisions on routings around its implementation. That's right. Yeah. So news late last week that Stenoline was cancelling its route between Nysham and Hanko in Finland, sorry, Sweden and Finland across the Baltic Sea, across the Bothnia, the Gulf of Bothnia, that's right. And it's as a result of the, of the ETS routes. But partly it's a worth putting point is because they have these Arland islands in between the two countries, which is like a tax-free zone and stuff. And the Finnish government has decided to um, grant an exemption on the ETS for vessels trading via the Arland islands. <laughs> and so Senna's basically said, because ferry services go via Ireland, won't be applying the ETS, we're not going to be able to um, continue our route that doesn't go via Ireland. Gavin Van Moll, I think anyone listening today would know that the Lodestar does really live inside these stories almost. You've been really good company today, and thanks for all your insights on uh, the Lodestar podcast. Cheers, Gav. It's been a pleasure, Mike. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank TAC Index, the Lodestar's air freight data provider, and Zenita, our sea freight data supplier. Big thanks to my editing team, Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. And most of all, gratitude to you all for listening. We'll be back soon. Mm-hmm.